Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, listeners. Welcome to our April Donor Pick, Minisode 40, where we'll be discussing Sam Mendez's Road to Perdition, the film adaptation of the Max Allen Collins graphic novel. I'm Aaron, and here with me, as always, is Patrick. And I can't figure out why he's smiling. Because it's all so effing hysterical, Aaron. Oh, well, that was creepy. Appropriate, maybe, but creepy. Uh, As we mentioned, our donors picked this film for us to cover. And in April, they chose from a list of films that strongly utilize rain in some way. We were going for a April showers bring about May flowers theme. So we both expected Singing in the Rain to win this poll, but we were pleasantly surprised when provided an opportunity to revisit this Tom Hanks gangster flick. Speaking of those patrons, um, we wanted to start off with a little mini review from one of them. Philip Hurd, who voted for this film, had this to say in our Facebook group. This is one of the most woefully underrated and underseen movies. Conrad Hall's photography closed out a stellar career. Thomas Newman's score is one of my favorites. It has a great cast and performances, and the father-son dynamic gets me to no end. There's style and substance to spare, and some good humor to temper the film's somber tone. If this film has a significant flaw, I am unaware of it. Sometimes we do get surprised when someone else picks the movie for us. And after watching this again, Patrick, I gotta say, I think I agree with Philip. I do too. I think he's got a lot that I completely agree with, with the exception of any flaws. And as I mentioned on social media, I think the one small defect would be Tom Hanks's mustache. That was a little weird, but <laughs> from that what is it with I, movie mustaches ruining films, I know it's, <laughs> they should have digitally removed it. No, <laughs> no, they should not have. That would have just made it worse. <laughs> Well, real quick, listeners, as always, we are a spoiler podcast. We're meant to enhance the discussion and conversation around a film, and so we are going to talk about this in detail. If you haven't seen Road to Perdition, we both highly recommend that you check this movie out. It is very good and worthy of your time, and we're going to talk about why right now. So turn away if you haven't seen it, and if you have seen it, keep listening. Okay, Patrick, we like to start with our one-word takeaways, and this one provided... Some interesting options. Uh, so I'm wondering what you pulled out of this as your main feeling. Well, <laughs> this came borderline close to being Manchester by the sea feeling for me. It, <laughs> I think the word that I pulled out was heavy. And there's a lot that you could kind of attach to this word. One being the overall tone of the story. There weren't a lot of moments of levity, which I guess enhanced those moments when they did happen. There's also the muted color palette from the director of photography, which I thought was very appropriate for the uh, for the film itself, and even the even the rain itself uh, when it was used in different parts of the film, it felt heavy. It didn't feel like it was just a sprinkle. It felt very much like a a beating down. And so, in a lot of ways, I think that the director and his creative team wanted to make us feel the weight of the world that they were playing in the weight of our main characters, Michael and, and Michael jr. 
and also the weight of just everything that that they were experiencing from the beginning of the movie all the way up to the climax like even the the very ending i think it was the only point that i felt like i could breathe out and go that's a little bit better i feel a little bit better after that that last moment so for the most part heavy was probably the only word that i could sum up to accurately describe my feelings for the movie well that's very similar to the word i chose and i think in some sense, they're kind of synonymous because my word would be tragic. I think it's very clear when you watch this movie that it has an element of Greek tragedy to it. Almost everyone loses in this film. Even the kind of happy-ish ending to me is large, it largely denied for our characters. And despite being a good person, in quotes, in a bad line of work, Mike still can't escape the violence and the likelihood of his profession to end in an early death, no matter what he does to avoid that as far as within the constraints of still doing that job. But it's not just his family that loses because it's the McGoverns. We see in the very early part of the film losing family members. We see the Roonies losing family members. And John Rooney tells Michael at one point in one of the most striking Sentences in the entire film, in my opinion. There are only murderers in this room. There's only one guarantee that none of us will see heaven. And the truth in that, to me, it makes every small act toward redemption from by Mike all the more powerful and ultimately, like I said, tragic. So, yeah, I think tragic, heavy, that weight that you have when watching this film is very apparent. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's there. The thing that, that I found interesting about this, and I, I intentionally brought up Manchester by the sea because I felt those same kinds of feelings, but I feel like I could rewatch this and maybe it's because of the redemption. Maybe it's because of all the beauty that lies kind of in between these, these dark scenes that we see, but this feels like a movie that at least in some weird way ends with hope as ambiguous as it kind of is. And and maybe that's why I, I put this high on my list of, of things that I could go back to as, as weighty as it is, it still feels like it has something to offer. It's not just a depressed story that's being told. Oh no, it's not. And I think there's a lot of elements of this film that we probably will end up talking about that kind of make it that way. Mm-hmm. And I want to start, though, by asking you about something that struck me, and that's the film of the, the, the film of the title, the title of the film. Um, it's funny because I, I for some reason, when when this got picked, I had always associated this movie with the words road to prohibition. Like that's that's the way I thought of it, because yeah. it's a, I remembered it being a gangster movie. And I was like, well, of course, it, that's what it's talking about. But it's not. It's perdition, which is a word that I was not familiar with until this movie. No and, road to alcohol. Right. Right. Well, that would, I feel like that would make so much sense for a gangster flick. But I'm wondering, do you see this as having a double meaning? Because I feel like it does. I, <laughs> I was a little disappointed because about halfway through, I was thinking that same thing road to perdition. Perdition. I, I know that word. I mean, I know that word. It's a theological word. And uh, I looked it up and didn't know quite what it meant. And so I, I was, kind of on my phone, I paused the movie up and I pulled up my phone and looked up the word and I said, yeah, this feels like it about the time that 
Michael says to his son, uh, we're going to go uh, visit your aunt in perdition. And I was like, really? You're going to make it literal? Are you going to be that on the nose about it? And so it didn't di- disappoint me, but I could see now that there was somewhat of a double meaning here. I kind of wish that the word perdition hadn't been a literal thing. Like I felt like the movie was doing fine on its own, giving us a metaphoric meaning behind it. So I do see the double meaning. That's the short answer, but I didn't like the double meaning. Okay. Well, I'm actually be on the other side of that because I really enjoy the double meaning. And like you, I pulled out my phone during the movie and Googled the word because I wanted to know what it meant. But the reason I like the double meaning is mainly because this it's a, it's weird, but this is a gangster film and it has a Western vibe. The boys, Michael Jr. Michael Jr. is creating a Lone Ranger and Tonto book. And it's got that kind of a Western anti-hero feel to the way that Mike's story plays out. Yeah. And the title Road to Perdition feels like a Western title to me. You know, you always use the name of those old Western towns. And so that element worked. Um, the fact that Perdition is this place of safety, in theory, where Michael Jr. is going to be with his relatives and that Mike is on these converging paths, one being a path to the city of Perdition, which is going to provide safety and you know, for his son, his son's going to be out of this life forever. And then also on this path of the theological word perdition, which was a state of eternal punishment and damnation into which a sinful and unrepentant person passes after death. That's, that's awful. I mean, it's just terrible, but I mean, that's, that's kind of where he's heading. And I think what he's doing is trying to get off of that road. He's trying to get off of one road to perdition, the theological sense, because he is becoming repentant and he, but yet he's still doing the actions he's doing. And then he's also wanting to be on the road to literal perdition, which is safety and ultimate, you know, a a good place for his son. That's not in the life he has. I I don't know that I completely agree with that. I think Mike, and we're going to, for the sake of argument, we'll call Mike, Tom Hanks' character and Michael, his his son, or Michael Jr. I don't ever see Mike as being a character that is looking to look for redemption. I think he has become his... I, that's why I like the metaphor, because I feel like he's sort of decided that this is the life he's going to live. This is the life he has. It's the life that he's been given, whether by accident or by design. And he just... This is what it is. And I, while I think he gets redemption, I don't think he's seeking it. I don't think he's trying to find it. I think he's literally trying to get his son to safety. And so in, in some ways, I get the duality of the word being used, but I don't necessarily think that he's trying to escape that theological idea more so that he's trying to get to the literal city. Well, that's perfect because... The flip side of that and not having redemption is that this is all an effect. This all is a, has consequences of violence. And that's, that's one of the biggest themes in this film is what happens when you're violent, right? And I want to lead this with something that the director himself, Sam Mendez said. He said, what's important in this story is what the violence does to the person who pulls the trigger and what it has done to them over the years how it has gradually corroded them. It has rotted their insides. 
What do you think about that? Do you see this? How do you feel about the violence in general in this film? Well, it's it's weighty, that's for sure. I I listen to I have to watch movies in in halves because um, the times that I usually spend doing it is at the gym while I'm running. And so I usually get about half to two thirds of a movie done. But what I've noticed in most of my movie experiences is that at least in the last two is that sound editing plays a huge part when the gunshots fire, when that rain comes down, it is loud. Like it is jarring how loud it is in my headphones. And I think that Mendez is spot on with his description. And I think more so what he does is we look at the various characters who have experienced this world of violence and we see how it's shaped them. I mean, we see, we see Michael or Mike, uh, we see his son kind of getting exposed to that with his entrance into seeing the, seeing the murder we see Jude Law's character. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. His name is McGuire. <laughs> McGuire, thank you. And I I see how violence shapes these guys individually. One goes one way, one goes the other. And it's interesting because it's the same violence. It's still killing people, whether because you're being ordered to, because you're being paid to, or because you have to. And we have two to three different characters who respond to it in different ways. And I think that's intentional because I think Mendez wants to show us how violence affects people whose heart may be either pure, jaded, angry, vengeful. I mean, all these different things where violence becomes the either the catalyst or the result of what's going on inside them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's one reason that McGuire, to me, is a wonderful foil for Tom Hanks's Mike. Because he plays, there's that one scene that really just captures all of this, right? And that's the one where we first meet him and he comes in as a photographer to photograph the crime scene and he's getting everything set up all meticulous and perfect. And then the victim starts breathing again. Oh gosh. And he just silently walks over and kills him, Mm -hmm. right? So that he can finish the job and take the pictures. And I guess it's because he plays out as a sociopathic assassin instead of just your normal Tommy gun wielding thug that you would expect. So Daniel Craig's character, Connor, is much more of the traditional gangster thug, right? right? With, albeit, you know, his own set of problems. But when he goes and he kills McGovern, it's that other kind of violence. It's that. I don't care. I'm angry. I'm bigger, badder than you. And you said something about my mama. So I'm going to just kill you. And I don't care about your life. Whereas Jude Law's character, McGuire is a, you know, he relishes in the way in which he murders as much as he does the act of the kill, the killing itself or the result of the killing. He's very methodical and well thought out, very purposeful in the way in which he does it. In fact, one of the scenes that stood out to me was shortly after we get introduced to McGuire and he's taking the order from uh from i guess it's john rooney he's on the phone and we can glean from his side of the conversation and his sketching on his notebook what he's going to do and the one thing that stood out to me was when he said and who's with him and he goes and how old is he and he writes down i guess he Dude. puts like seven Dude, and it's then 12 it's 12. 12 
and then he takes the one, one and makes it a box as if it's a check. Oh my gosh. I, I, I died. Like that was one of the most heavy movement moments in the movie for me too. I'm like, this is a guy who is psycho. Like he is, this is, this is a grocery list for him. He does not even think about the moral or anything about it. It's completely just outside the mind of a sane person. Yeah, absolutely. And then by contrast, you see Michael's violence, Mike's violence, right? And I think we only see him murder a couple of times, one being at the end, McGuire, obviously in response, but then we see him actively going after John Rooney and his his gang. And that scene in general is just, oh, it's so iconic. I mean, but the way that he does it and the way it's, the way it's handled. And again, it's all in those facial expressions. That's what makes this movie's acting so amazing to me. Mm-hmm. It's the way that the sociopath side of McGuire is played versus the manic wildness of Connor and then versus the stoic, almost tears in the rain by Hanks when he's yeah. killing John McGovern, who is his dad, right? Like it's his surrogate dad that he's murdering that he feels he has to do this. And, and it's interesting. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see his that murder scene where he kills John, and it's almost like he kills him not mercifully, but it's from a it's well, it's not from a distance either because he comes up and anyway, but it's different than the way he kills Connor. I mean, his killing of Connor is out of anger and sheer rage. It's vengeance. Yes. Yeah, correct. It's very much vengeance. Whereas I feel like with John, it's like, I don't want to do this, but it has to be done because you've left me no choice. And all of those things are a reflection of, I think the attitudes that exist in each one of those characters. Perfect. It's, v- it's very reflective of that. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see on screen, violent, notwithstanding, but I really think that was purposeful uh, for, for Mendez. Oh, I do too. And I love that John says to him, I'm glad it's you right before he dies. But, but you're right. I think you just hit on something very important to me, which is the manner of choice. Many of these characters are thrust into this situation via this story that choice is taken away from them in so many ways. Like because of the cycle that they live in and the the lifestyle that they have chosen, these are the only possible outcomes. (laughs) You know, these, there's not, there's not like a choice being made to where we could have done something differently and probably gotten away with it. John, John says to um, Mike, I think at one point, you know, or no, it's, it's Capone in his limited cameo time, which is pretty cool by the way, to take like a, such a majorly known character and barely giving him any screen time. But Capone tells him, just go to Ireland. Like, don't you just go away. But we know that that's not really an option. We know that that's not going to save him in the end. Yeah. Knowing that the power of choice here is really interesting because it's still being defined by circumstances that we are exposed to. I mean, there's no easy choice to make here in this world. It's as if this is what's normal. You brought up Capone having sort of a cameo. It's interesting because I think that's why I think Mendez does that intentionally because of the fact that it's, it's not a gang story. It's a story. It's a family story. It's a story about fathers and sons and relationships. And it's using the backdrop of this gang driven period of our country's history 
to help tell that story. And it's really giving heart to what we kind of only know as just violent and completely heartless life lifestyles of these guys. I mean, we know about the Capone, we know about the the gangs and, and how ruthless that was, but these father son relationships in particular uh, with Rooney and, and Mike and with Mike and Michael, these things are equally comparable to the, to the, the types of reflective hearts that, that stem to the violence that we talked about. We see Rooney's relationship with his son <laughs> and how, oh my gosh, that the, the one scene that stood out to me was when he kills uh, Michael's family and comes back and John comes up to him and just says, I curse the day you were born and just slaps him and slaps him. Brutal. And then he embraces him. And we see in that moment, the kind of relationship they have. And you contrast that with the relationship that Michael and Mike have. And it's a very much a disciplinarian relationship, but it's done in love. Like Michael, he says, uh, it's after the diner scene. And he says, when I tell you to go in, you, you go in. And it's very much how I remember my dad talking to me when he got really mad at me. But you know there was a sense of love and value behind that as opposed to disappointment and resentment. And yeah. there's just an incredible contrast between those. Uh, one thing I wish I would have gotten more of is the father-son dynamic between uh, John and Michael. Because I know that was an important piece of the story that I don't feel like I got enough of. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I think for me it was enough. Um, okay. We knew – I see where you're – I mean it would have been – enjoyable to have more backstory of how they became surrogate father and, and child um, essentially. But I liked that we just got enough to know how they felt about each other without necessarily needing any specifics on why, but I did like when they were on screen together, I think when you have Paul Newman and Tom Hanks together, that's probably part of why you wanted that because this is, this is two forces of acting history that, knock out of the park and when they're going at each other or or having an emotional moment together it's amazing right so by that regard yeah you're right 100 percent. the family stuff for me largely stems from well first of all i find it interesting that mike's wife is very seemingly well aware of what he does for a living and that they both work very hard to cover up what he does in order to protect the boys and protect the family. And it's, mm-hmm. it's treated as a job. Like daddy's going away to work. It's not that big of a deal, right? It's not, it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's just what dad does to bring home the bacon. And the kids have, because of that, romanticized what he, what he does. At one point, one of them says, Papa goes on missions for the president. Like they, they think that he's this super secret hero. Again, with the Lone Ranger and Tonto bit. Um, that's going on kind of as we move through the film. And it makes Michael's realization that his dad is not a hero so painful. Like mm-hmm. the acting in that moment is really tough to watch because then he has to be faced with this idea that his dad is not who he thought he was. Yeah. But what it becomes is it becomes a parenting story, in my opinion. And I really love how the movie puts me in this position where I have conflicting emotions. It creates these in me. I'm angry, very angry at Mike. His, his wife and his son have been murdered. 
Like, but what do you do? Do you sit and wallow? Do you sit and be depressed? Or do you teach your son to drive because your son needs to learn to drive for you to survive? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's really an intriguing way to tell this story. And, I, and that's what I love about Tom Hanks being cast in this main role. Okay. Because he's so likable because everything we know about Tom Hanks is the good guy. Mm-hmm. So for him to be put in this role, it challenges our perceptions against type and it makes it even easier for us to want to empathize with him while also having to face down that truth that as a father, he is a major failure as well. Mm-hmm. There's a a sense of not being able to grieve that we connect with, with Mike, because he doesn't, there's, there's no, there's no grave scene. There's no private funeral. There's no, long pause where he's looking back at the house and just basically saying goodbye. No, he says to his son, this is no longer your house. This is no longer your home. It's a building. We're leaving. And he leaves his dead wife and child in there. And so like you in one way, I'm like, how can you have no heart? But then I realize the circumstances are really dictating his next action. He can't grieve. He doesn't have the opportunity to because he still has a son. And he knows in that moment that his son, as long as he's alive, he is in danger. And that's his job. His job now is to protect his family. His job has always been to protect the family. And for up until that moment, it was Rooney. But now it's his family against Rooney. And it creates conflict, but at the same time, it's understandable conflict. It's like this, I want to grieve, but I don't have time to, I don't have the chance to, and I can't do that. I have to, I have to compartmentalize that. I, I'm kind of glad that we didn't get that. I felt like his death at the very end was his way of sort of being relieved of that pain mm-hmm. because maybe now he can quote be with his family. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I, I am conflicted because I wanted him to have that resolution in life, but it, he didn't. Well, Philip also had something to say about this. He says, um, also, there's no form of self-loathing like when you fail a child. And seeing Sullivan's family suffer so greatly for his poor decisions is poignant. And that's, I think that's what we both feel as well. And we think mm-hmm. that's just so strongly portrayed throughout this whole narrative. And it's awesome to see the multiple father and son relationships, like you mentioned, that are woven throughout this to give us comparisons mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, there's a little, there's a little piece of this one that's good, but there's so much of it that's unhealthy and bad. Mm-hmm. And yet where does, where do we land? And I think that's part of what we end up feeling at the ending too, because there's this amazing line of dialogue <laughs> Um, where Michael Jr. is narrating over the course of the film after his dad's been killed. And he says, people ask if he was a good man. And my answer is, he was my father. So the ambiguity of this statement, right? What do we think he means by that? And I'm, what I'm asking is, is being good, is being a good man subjective? I think it's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, when you... It's like when you're asking if in some ways 
parking in a handicapped spot when you're not handicapped, is that wrong? Well, it's legally wrong, but maybe it's not, <laughs> it's not like morally wrong because you're not doing harm to anybody in that moment. And I won't get into that discussion, but I think when it comes to a father son relationship, I think the fact is my junior was basically saying he was my father and that's what mattered. And he fulfilled that role as best he could. I felt like he left it to people to make that decision on their own because he was only Mike Jr.'s father. He was nobody else's dad. And so maybe to me and you who were friends of the, maybe we were McGuire's brother and sister or something like that, or maybe we were other families that he was hired to shake down. Was he a good man? Not, not to those people, but to those who he cared about, to those who he was a father to, I believe he was. And I think that what that does is that gives us that ability to be able to say to you or to me, you are X, Y, and Z, maybe not to other people, but it gives a sense of value to a person that nobody else can see because of their role in your life. Yeah, I actually view it exactly the same way as you. And it was it was a major gut punch for me that moment. I mean, that it brought me to like tears at the end of the movie right when the credits are rolling, which is annoying because I thought I had recovered. And then they end it like that. Um you think that you're going to be okay and then he dies and then he saves Michael Jr. and so you're kind of like okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not crying. I'm I'm happy. And then he says that and you're like, "Oh, now I'm crying again." But it really brings empathy for his life. And I think it's mm-hmm. because we can all step into those shoes. It shows us that it, while explore, it explores the idea of did he do enough good to counteract the bad he did for Rooney? But the answer to me is that they are mutually exclusive. And this I is agree. I believe what you're saying is yeah. that we are all good and bad and it's a scale to a greater or lesser extent given on any specific context. So I'm really good in this aspect of my life in this context, but I'm really bad in this aspect of my life in this context. Exactly. And so to try and define a person is not black and white. It's not simple. And so many films make it simple and that's okay. I mean, there's movies that that's the way the stories work, right? They're very good and bad. And what I love about Road to Perdition especially is that this is a gangster story in which 90% of them are told straightforward, good and bad. It's known. Mm-hmm. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. This is who you root for. This is who you don't. And in this one, it's much more kind of muddied and murky. Well, it, okay. It brings to light a question that that I had when I when I finished the movie. Would I have felt any differently about Michael? had he not had a family if his if some i mean obviously the whole motive for the rest of the movie was him protecting his son but what if it was a random kid or what if it was somebody that what what if it wasn't family connected what if we just saw michael as the son of or the the surrogate son of of the of, the, of this family of rooney and nothing more. And I, what I'm getting at is I feel like the layer of fatherhood, the layer of family gives us that empathy in a stronger way than just trying to create something from, from just a single character. 
Right. It totally, totally does. I, I agree. And I, and this one of the things about the movie that I don't remember feeling this when I saw it 15 years ago, but now I'm a dad and I have a teenage boy and it impacted me in a wholly different way. And I think that's been the case with pretty much every movie that deals with fatherhood that I've seen in my older age. Mm-hmm. They all resonate stronger because I have that background. So I don't think it would have hit me in the same way, nearly the same way. I think, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. And I'm glad you bring it up because it's something people need. We can all just go inside our head and consider why that we would be much less empathetic toward a character with no family than we would with one that does have a family and why there's a difference there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't want to skip over the cinematography and the score in this. Normally we, we try to focus you know, on the narrative and the emotional aspects of the film and where it takes us. And we don't get deep in the weeds on this stuff, but this movie, these two things enhance the emotion of the film in ways that are undeniable and absolutely masterpiece level, frankly, in my opinion, I don't have another word for it. When I was watching this movie, Patrick, and this cinematography, I was thinking to myself, A, who the heck did this? And B, I'm nervous because if I go look this up and he didn't win an Oscar for this movie, I'm going to be furious. So the answers are Conrad Hall, who is a fantastic uh, cinematographer who I really didn't know a ton about until this movie. And I went and looked up some of his other films. He's had an amazing career. He actually won the Oscar for this, thankfully. Sadly, it was posthumous. Uh, he died before he could accept it. And so ironically, or I don't even know where the word would be, but like his son accepted it, which seems fitting to me. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, this cinematography in this is incredible. There are so many just moments, snapshots. We use the word every frame of painting. And there's the wonderful YouTube series that used to have that in it. And I truly believe that's the case here because I do think you can pause this movie at almost any single moment and snapshot it and put it on your wall and make it a poster. Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning, we get the, the, the weight of the rain, we get the grays, we get the, the mix of the muted color palette, along with the stringed (laughs) instruments of Thomas Newman and his score. And we're immediately kind of thrown into a world that we don't have to get used to. We're just making assumptions about what this world is. And it's clarified by dialogue. It's clarified by costumes. And I think that there's some power in that when you have the opening shot of a guy on a beach, a kid on a beach with a little voiceover And then it connects over to that next scene. And it's just like, okay, I don't have to be told anymore. I can kind of glean what kind of movie this is going to be from those two main elements, from the cinematography and from the score. And that takes some real power and some real trust to be able to do that uh, from the director's chair to say, I'm not going to trust dialogue necessarily. I'm going to trust other kind of senses, <laughs> visual and oral, to help begin my story. And I thought they were both beautiful. I thought both of those elements were beautifully done throughout the movie. 
Yeah, there's so many. I can just say, again, like I could point to them and be like, wow, that's a favorite scene of all time right there, which is, you know, Mike walking up with the Tommy gun in the rain and and mowing everybody down. Then you have that scene on the beach. Then what struck me so much about that is there's lots of symmetry in the shots. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Wes Anderson light in, in a lot of ways. And when he walks into that kitchen, it's all white around him and on the ground and you get him up to the window and you see in the window through the corner, you see Michael Jr. waving at him from the beach before he gets shot. And so then there's oh, then there's that contrast of the blood on the white. And and of course the water motif that apparently is a Sam Mendez hallmark that is actually can be traced further throughout his filmography, which I'm not gonna do here. But every death in this movie seems to have a water element to it. You have blocks of ice that are melting on the body at the funeral. Mm -hmm. It's raining when Michael Jr. sneaks out and watches the murder in the warehouse of uh, Syrian Hines, McGovern character. The mother had just finished giving his brother a bath when they're killed. The final showdown with McGuire takes place by a beach in a kitchen. And even uh, Daniel Craig's character, Connor Rooney, he dies in a bath as well. Mm -hmm. And so for Mendez, it's this idea of that heaviness that you said earlier of the rain is ultimately what kills in so many ways. It's it's fascinating to see kind of play out over the course of a movie and then look back and notice that it was all the way followed through on. Yeah, I think the idea of water, rain, but water more generally speaking is this what I picked up on and I could be way off base. I picked up the fact that water can be very constricting like if you've ever gone swimming or you're underwater i mean the idea of drowning choking on water is something that i don't think anybody would want to experience and i think when you have this rain motif and this water symbolism or not even symbolism but just water motif in all these different scenes connected with death what we have are people that are suffocating Either they're suffocating because of the weight of their circumstances in life and the rain just sort of beats down on them or they're just kind of waiting in just, I don't know. I think the idea of water just sort of surrounding you and, and not being a comfort, but being more of a constriction, I think is something that I picked up on. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I got nothing else for this one other than to say that I was blown away by it. If you can't tell already, I was just so mesmerized. I immediately wanted to watch it again. I immediately wanted to own the Blu-ray disc with the commentary by Sam Mendez. I definitely am going to buy it because I want to be able to hear what he has to say. And I want to be able to watch this over and over and pause anytime I want and just stare at the beauty of it. And I kind of, wanted to read the graphic novel. Although I looked it up online and found that many people have said, this is a rare example of a movie being better than a book. So I don't know, maybe I'll pass on that. And <laughs> well, anyway, before we wrap, before we wrap up, I want to give a little bit of love to Thomas Newman. I mentioned earlier, the score being uh, just really phenomenal, very fitting. The, each scene kind of layered with that music. And it reminded me a lot of passengers I know we talked a little bit offline about this, but Passengers did not get a lot of love at the Academy Awards. I mean, it got a nomination, but I think offline people were like, yeah, that's, you know, it's standard Thomas Newman. But the fact is, the man's awesome. 
He is and underrated some, for sure. Well, I think he's up there with guys like, like John Williams who are so kind of in the know with consistent. You mean? Yeah. That they just, they're not new or fresh and they don't, but their stuff is just really great. Yeah. The one thing that I noticed and I was showing you that I was listening to a Newman score compilation the day after I watched this movie Mm -hmm. because I was like, man, that piano and those strings, that orchestral nature of his score in both this and passengers were similar. Like you said, and I, what I found is going back, this is common. Like this is his signature sound, much like Zimmer has a signature sound and Williams has a signature sound. And many of these Johnny Greenwood has a signature sound. So composers don't always are not always completely different. They often are going to be similar in the way that they make scores. And that's probably what makes them hireable because you know what you're going to get, right? Like I need this thing. And what blows me away about the score in this one is it is light when the movie needs it to be light. And when Mm -hmm. it needs you to not get down in the dumps and you're really about to, it lightens the mood enough. And then when it needs to get serious, it gets very serious. And I, I agree, man. I think it is a standout score and that's part of why I think the movie is so special. Just it's that all it's the all around product for me. Everything about it, acting, score, every element works. Yeah, no disagreements here. Awesome. Well, we're done with this. We are glad it sounds like that our listeners picked this movie for us. So hopefully that trend will continue into May. Patrick, where can people find you, and what are we going to be doing in May? Well, you can uh, you can check me out on social media. I'm at Facebook and Twitter at Shoeless Patch S H O E. L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Just throw that name into the search bar and you should find me pretty easily. Uh, uh, Voting for the donor pick episodes generally happens between the 1st and 10th of each month. So if you want to get involved with that, if you want to do some voting yourself, you can check us out and uh, support us going to patreon.com slash feelinfilm and become a supporter and get in on that voting for as little as, is it a dollar? Yeah, a little dollar a month for for voting. And we already have a bonus top five episode planned for May. So if you want to get in on that, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month or more, and you get access to all that good stuff there too. Outstanding. I'm excited about that. And I'm glad that we're being able to do some bonus content because we're about to record one right after this, and I'm excited. Um, if you'd like to contact me, you can find me anywhere online using Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, or I am feeling film Aaron to make it easy on Twitter, which I'm very active on. So come chat with me because I love doing that all day long, every day instead of working. You can also join us in our amazing feeling film Facebook group where people are talking about movies and having great discussions all day long, every day. If you get in there now, you probably still find the what's Tom Cruise's best performance thread and come drop your favorite in there. Let people know that it is indeed Top Gun and join me. It is not Magnolia or some highly dramatic nonsense. Days of Thunder. It's no, Days of Thunder. Stop it. <laughs> stop. I, I'd go with that before Magnolia. Anyway, <laughs> listeners, this has been fun. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. And uh, check out more of our show in our back catalog if you're new. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film. Film.